What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. Jan had become paralyzed through a disease process such that she couldn't move anything below her neck. And she volunteered to have the surgical procedure in which we implanted electrodes in her head. And we were able to decode the signals from her brain and she was able to move a high-performance prosthetic arm and hand. That's Andy Schwartz, a professor of neurobiology at the University of Pittsburgh. He helped build the technology that allowed a patient called Jan Sherman to control a robotic arm with her mind. In order to do that, Andy's team needed to give the arm a way to know where Jan wanted it to move. They had to read signals directly from her brain and teach a computer to understand them. So they built a brain-computer interface, a BCI. We implanted electrodes in her head. You have to put on these bulky connectors with thick cables going to a bank of amplifiers and computers. It sounds like something out of a science fiction film, but once Andy could see Jan's neurons firing, reading her intentions was simpler than you might think. What we found is that the rate that these neurons fire is related to the direction that the arm moves. When you add their signals together, you can get a very precise representation of that movement. It's a very, very simple algorithm. It's like listening to a Geiger counter, um, and each click of the Geiger counter is the same, but as you get closer to a radioactive source, those clicks come closer together. Listening for those clicks was the breakthrough necessary to translate Jan's thoughts into signals that the robotic arm could understand. And this meant that Jan could move again. She could reach out and touch her husband. And Andy's team filmed Jan using the arm to complete a more playful goal that she'd set, to feed herself chocolate for the first time in 10 years. giant 
Jan was able to do that with the robot. And not only that, but she made graceful and beautiful movements. That's what really blew me away. It looks much like a, a real arm and hand. And um, for someone who studies movement, it was really quite beautiful. Andy is a scientist and a researcher, not given to being sentimental. But the way he talks about Jan moving her robotic arm is like describing a dance, a ballet. It's one of the most inspiring examples of humans and machines working together in concert that we've come across in all of our reporting for Sleepwalkers. But it also raises profound questions about the future of our health, our bodies and our society. What are the implications, positive and negative, as AI makes us ever more able to decode complex systems like the brain or the human genome? How is AI poised to change the world of medicine? I'm Oz Veloshin, and this is Sleepwalkers. So, Kara, I found Andy's story completely mind-blowing, no pun intended. <laughs> you know, it shakes one of the last remaining mysteries. For the most part, neuroscience is still very much a black box problem. We know what's happening in the brain... But neuroscientists can't always know why and how, which is a lot like the problem of black box AI. We are moving quickly into a world where sensors can read us better and better. You know, they can read pupil dilation, carbon dioxide in the breath to understand people's emotions. Yeah, this is the stuff we talked about in episode four around using AI to better read biometrics with Poppy Crumb. The difference being in this case is that Andy isn't monitoring the outside of our bodies. So the privacy concern is less. Uh, to read Jan's brain, he had to drill into her skull and place electrodes into the surface of her brain and then connect them to a computer. So that's unlikely to creep up on you. Google is not going to be doing that to get geolocation. Not yet. Um, because that said, Andy told me one of his big priorities is trying to figure out how to achieve the same effects without needing invasive surgery so that people can use this technology at home. Talking about reading the brain, one cutting edge application for AI is to restore language. A few months ago, I was actually reading this paper in Nature, and I'm not sure all podcast listeners read Nature. Well, thanks, Carol. You do the hard work so that uh, we don't have to, I guess. That's why might they pay me the big Bitcoin. <laughs> um, but, you know, basically this article was about decoding the human brain to produce language based on how the brain tells the mouth to move. Well, funny enough, uh, this is something I spoke to Andy about a few months before your paper in Nature was published, Kara, And he was talking about exactly this. So if you record from motor areas associated with producing language, you can start to recognize certain words and phrases even. I think that's realizable in the near term. What Andy is saying is that to create spoken words directly from the brain, we don't actually need to read thoughts. We can just look at the last step, the moment when thought becomes action as neurons fire to move our tongue, our lips, our jaw to create sound. And just like with Jan, an algorithm can listen to those neurons and allow thoughts to become actions. And this could transform lives. So if you could start to recognize words and language from brain activity, that would be very helpful for people who are like locked in with ALS and can't communicate. 
We talked in the last episode about how many technological breakthroughs have come out of DARPA. That's the branch of the Defense Department charged with inventing technological surprises. Well, neural prosthetics, or robotic limbs controlled by the mind, have been an area of heavy investment for the agency. You may remember Gil Pratt from earlier in the series. He's now the CEO of the Toyota Research Institute. But previously, he was at DARPA, where he worked with none other than Andy Schwartz. So he was involved in a project at DARPA which was called Revolutionizing Prosthetics. And the project that I started was to see if we could actually help some of the experimental patients that he had to perform even better. So, Kara, I was interviewing Gil Pratt about his work at Toyota and on self-driving cars, and we got talking about his interest in these human-machine partnerships. And I said, let me tell you a story. <laughs> <laughs> There's a scientist called Andy Schwartz and his patient Jan, and Gil was like, um, yeah, I worked on that. He's like, yeah, no, 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 I know her. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. It's funny, and it also shows the long arm of DARPA. No pun intended again. <laughs> <laughs> That's far away from military applications. You know, DARPA's interest in prosthetics is actually because of veterans, many of whom lose limbs on the battlefield, which highlights again the dual-use nature of so much innovation. Right. Um, And the work Gil was doing at DARPA with Jan was all about doing a better job of interpreting her brainwaves using the existing models. My group made a system called Arm Assist that watched what Jan was trying to do and it inferred okay, now she's trying to pick up a block. Now she's trying to move it over to the left. Now she's trying to drop the block. You know, in a way very similar to if you use PowerPoint and you have like snap to grid or snap to object turned on, it'll help you move the mouse to where it thinks you want to go. This system helped her move the arm to where it inferred she wanted to go based on a very noisy signal that was coming out of her brain. That noise in the signal was partly because the connection between Jan's brain and the decoding computer was weak. So Gill's team at DARPA designed a program to boost Jan's intentions. We tested her by randomly turning the assist on and off. And you can think of the assist as a guardian, like what we're developing for the car, to stop you from having a crash. And we had the guardian, in this case, help as little as possible but still be effective at helping her to reach the goal. The amount of help that we gave her was so low that uh, she couldn't tell whether it was on or off. But when Guardian was turned off, Jan's success rate fell. And in a human-machine partnership, it's not just the computer that adapts to the human. The brain also adapts to the algorithm. Andy's algorithms are simple, and they rely on human-programmed rules. So... When they see cause, in this case, enough neurons firing at the same time, they create an effect, a movement. But what's tantalizing is that effect, that output, hints at something far deeper and infinitely complex. Personality. I like Moby Dick, where he talks about Captain Ahab walking on the deck of the ship, and by observing his movements, you can really understand what he's thinking about. If you think about movement, It's really a communication between your innermost thoughts and the outside world. Andy and his team saw this come to life before their very eyes when they connected another subject, Nathan, to a neural prosthesis. The robotic arm moved in accordance with the personality of the user. Jan, when she moved, she was very careful and gentle. And Nathan is more of a video gamer. He's a younger guy. He's more of a competitor. So he would move much faster, 
And so he would pick up an object and then instead of placing it carefully in a receptacle, he would basically toss it in the receptacle to be faster. Today, we can see the difference in Nathan and Jan's personalities from how their brain controls a prosthetic arm. We can infer personality from output. But we don't yet have sophisticated enough tools to ask why. As we get better and better at these computational approaches, we'll gain a much better understanding of the way the brain works. Rather than having uh, some major event causing some simple consequence, Instead, it's more like a perfect storm where many factors come together to generate a consequence. And if we understand which of those events are important and how they're combined, then we can start to understand brain function better. If you see a cup and you're thirsty, if we could realize that what you want to do is to drink from it, then we could understand that you want to grasp the cup from the side And if we could distinguish that from you grasping a cup with the intention of passing it to me, you might hold it now from the top, then we could do a better job generating the correct movement. For Andy, the next frontier is more deeply understanding the human brain carrot by developing new models and better algorithms. And that's really a computer science problem as much as a medical problem. And really, the next frontier in medicine is all about using AI to decode complex interactions. And in fact, you reported a piece on exactly this phenomenon. Yeah, I spoke to a woman named Regina Barzilai. She's a computer scientist at MIT. And her own experience of how she was diagnosed with breast cancer actually inspired her to work on bringing AI into the realm of medicine. When we come back, we'll hear from Regina and take a look at other ways AI is changing diagnostics and the future of our health. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years, and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. I remember still, I went to mammogram at MIT and they told me you're high density, but you shouldn't worry. Half of the population have high density breasts, so don't worry about it. That's Regina Barzilai. Regina is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. 
I couldn't believe it. I didn't feel anything. There was nothing wrong, you know. I was continuing my morning runs and being fine. It was later on, after her mammogram, that Regina found out she had breast cancer. And as it often does, the news came as a surprise. And if I'm looking at myself, I really cannot explain what was wrong that I got this disease. I clearly didn't have any family history. I'm exercising, I'm eating healthy. And for many, many patients that I met during my own journey, uh, their diagnosis came to them as a bigger surprise. The thing is, according to current medical standards, breast cancer risk is based on a few factors. Are you a woman and are you old? Do you have the BRCA gene and do you have breast cancer in your family? But those are relatively simple inputs and they don't account for what complex systems we are. Above 80% of women who are diagnosed with breast cancer, they are first in their families. So it's not clear, you know, what causes it. According to the Susan B. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation, breast cancer is the most common cancer amongst women around the world. Every two minutes, a case of breast cancer is diagnosed in a woman in the United States. And every minute, somewhere on Earth, a woman dies of breast cancer. That's more than 1,400 women per day. So if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know someone who has been or will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. And with that many people affected, there are bound to be some oversights, like in Regina's case. I discovered that my own diagnosis was delayed because the malignancy was missed in the previous mammograms. And uh, I also discovered that this is not a unique experience. So the question I ask is, is it possible for us to know ahead of time what's to come. In other words, can we look into the future? Prior to her diagnosis, Regina had already been a longtime computer scientist at MIT. She thought often about machine learning in her work, but this new personal hardship redirected her thinking. When you go to the hospital, you see like real pain of other people. You see people who go through chemo, through radiation. Even though the hospital is just one stop away from MIT, I just was not aware there is so much suffering. And at that point, when I came back, I was thinking, we create so much, you know, exciting new technology at MIT. Why we are not trying to solve it? It's, it's just a travesty. And so, Regina and her colleagues at MIT began training a deep learning model on over 90,000 mammograms from Mass General Hospital. And with such a large data set, they were able to predict a patient's risk of breast cancer by comparing one mammogram to tens of thousands of others instantly. My firm belief was that despite the standard risk factor, there is a lot of information in women's breast. Human eye, which even seen, you know, thousands or tens of thousands images over their lifetime, may not be really able to detect it with a great clarity. However, if machine, which is... Uh, you know, trained on 60,000 images where it knows the outcomes, it can identify this difference in pixel distribution that are likely correlate to future things that may come. The amount of data which you can train a computer on versus a doctor is massive. And the AI was able to detect smaller details than the human eye could pick up. So this does feel like a perfect application for the strengths of machine learning. Fifteen months ago, we put first our density model, which is every mammogram that goes through Mass General. It shows a prediction to the radiologist, and around 95% of the times, radiologists agree with the machine. 
And when they disagree, the more experienced radiologist typically sides up with the machine. So Regina's early efforts are doing really well. And the hope is that more hospitals around the country will begin using these models for early detection and risk assessment. And that's not only because understanding risk is important, but also because misdiagnoses have led to unnecessary surgeries. I read this book, The Emperor of All Maladies. It's a book about cancer, which I really like. Let me just say one particular moment that really stresses me out. It's about how men, male surgeons, were treating women with the surgeries, they firmly believe that the more you cut out of, you know, women's body, the better is her likelihood. In the early 20th century, there was an insurgence of doctors performing radical mastectomies, removing the entire breast, thus permanently disfiguring a patient. And radical mastectomies became the norm for much of the 20th century. The reasoning was that removing a lump leaves the risk of tumors growing elsewhere. So why take the risk? By the 1980s, it was clear that radical mastectomies weren't actually an effective treatment for many patients. But according to Regina, surgeons still remove too much tissue out of an abundance of caution. The reason it happens, it's not because there is some evil doctor that wants to make another surgery, it's just because people are uncertain and it's high risk. And many times cancer patients will say, I'm ready to go for the harshest treatment to minimize the chances. So what uh, we demonstrated that with machine learning, you can actually identify 30% of the population that doesn't need this type of surgery. Regina told me that had these deep learning models been in place at the time of her early mammograms, she might have detected her risk two years sooner. And in many cases, early detection makes a big difference in how a patient chooses to treat their cancer. Since developing the breast cancer detection model, Regina is now co-leading MIT's J-Clinic, which is a new initiative focusing on machine learning and health. What I hope that we as a society advance since then, and we are ready to bring, you know, the recent science and help women. And even if it means that we need to change our beliefs about how risk assessment works. And Regina hopes that as a society, we can move toward greater acceptance of using machine learning to enhance medicine. Whichever one does a better job, that one should prevail. So, big question. How would you feel, Cara, about putting your health into the hands of an algorithm? You know, after speaking to Regina, who told me that she probably would have been diagnosed two years sooner using her models, it seems as though machine learning provides this unparalleled form of detection, right? Because the most seasoned doctors simply can't compare thousands of data points at once. I don't think the issue is algorithms replacing doctors. It's more a matter of equipping doctors with sharper tools so that they can do their jobs. They've got to provide a patient with information and allow that patient to make informed decisions. Algorithms don't have a bedside manner. Yeah, what you say about the sharper tools reminds me of our conversation about creativity in episode two using AI to give artists, musicians, screenwriters new tools to do better work. At the same time, um, just like the art world, the medical profession sits on this enormous pedestal where we have to trust what they say because most of us don't have the tools to question them. Right, unless you're on WebMD. Yeah, the bane of every doctor's life. Yeah, you know, doctors have a hard enough time explaining medicine to patients. Imagine them having to explain artificial intelligence. Well, from experience, we can say good luck to them. (laughs) What's crazy to me, actually, is that Regina and her co-author, this woman, Dr. Connie Lehman, who's a radiologist at Mass General, 
were rejected from every single federal grant they submitted at first. Why would they be rejected from all those federal grants? Because as much as there is a ton of buzz surrounding AI, I think people have to appreciate how new this frontier is, right? And using machine learning to make predictions about people's cancer is very, very new. And it's going to take doctors a really long time to learn how to convey this information to patients. So that's where Regina is right now, figuring out how doctors can explain to patients, hey, AI helped us determine your cancer risk. Well, part of the problem is that we don't yet have explainable AI. So it's not just that it's hard to explain it to patients, it's actually a black box. Um, You may remember Sebastian Thrun, the founder of Google X from earlier in the series. As well as self-driving cars and flying cars, he works on medical diagnostics, and he recognizes a problem. One of the conundrums of uh, machine learning is that when you open up a neural network, you look at like hundreds of millions of numbers, but you can't quite understand what's happening. So people are concerned. People look at networks and say, oh, wow, this thing is diagnosing cancer. What does it do? We've talked about the black box problem in AI and how hard it is to trust decisions that can't be explained. But Sebastian is quick to point out that human beings can also be difficult to decipher. Let's remind ourselves, our doctors are also black boxes. You can't open up the brain of your doctor and ask, what rules is he or she using for diagnosing cancer? It's a fair point, and it's one that has also been noted by Siddhartha Mukherjee. He is one of the world's foremost cancer doctors and the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Emperor of All Maladies. That's the book that Regina referred to earlier. And Siddhartha has also written extensively about how AI is changing medicine. I've been a huge fan of his work for a long time and actually ambushed him after a talk he gave in order to persuade him to do an interview for this podcast. So thinking about AI helping diagnose patients, it's worth asking, is a human doctor so very different? One problem that I think is fascinating is when a patient comes into the hospital, if you ask a particularly astute physician, that physician can actually describe to you what the most likely journey of that patient will be in the hospital whether they're likely to stay for 25 days, suffer through bacterial sepsis, you know, all from peeking in through the door of an emergency room. Siddhartha started to wonder how doctors make those lightning-fast calls, and it got him interested in understanding what the brain is doing when a doctor makes a diagnosis. We actually understand very little about how human beings make diagnoses. I mean, the studies that have been done so far suggest that most people make diagnoses in a kind of a recognition sense rather than an algorithmic sense. The classical description of how we make diagnosis was extraordinarily algorithmic, sort of goes down a series of elimination. It's not this, it's not that. Now, when Siddhartha says algorithmic, he doesn't mean using a computer algorithm. He means using rule-based logic, if this, then that, etc. But what he learned was that despite what the textbooks say, that's not actually how doctors make a diagnosis. When you put doctors inside MRI machines and ask the question, how do they make diagnosis? In fact, what lights up is parts of the brain that are much, much more to do with pattern recognition. Here's a rhinoceros, here's not a rhinoceros. Here's an elephant, here's not an elephant. Especially mature doctors make diagnoses based on pattern recognition and they'll flit around like moths around the flame and ultimately slowly arrive at the target. It's a much more geographical way of thinking rather than linear They're using a combination of Bayesian or or prior probability understandings. They're using pattern recognition. They're understanding things about a patient and figuring out um, what to do. 
Hearing Siddhartha speak about doctors, Kara, in terms like prior probability understandings and Bayesian statistics, really does make it sound like he's describing AI rather than people. Well, he kind of is. You know, neural networks are purposely modeled on the human brain. It's not as easy as cause and effect. It's about drawing on a lifetime of experience to make best guesses based on competing information that we have to weigh appropriately in microseconds. No easy task. It's funny because we've warned several times on this series that we shouldn't be surprised when our creations reflect us And yet, it's almost impossible not to be. I feel a sense of uncanny chills when Siddhartha describes a human doctor working like an algorithm. Yeah, and he wrote about this in The New Yorker with the headline, AI versus MD. And he made this point, which is that human and machine processes of making diagnosis are converging. And it makes me wonder, who's going to have the final word? Well, I asked Sebastian Thrun exactly that question. People die of cancer a lot. I believe many of those deaths are actually preventable using artificial intelligence. It's amazing how diverse diagnostics you get when you show a set of dermatologists the same set of images. Some will say 98% are cancerous, others will say 5%. And Sebastian has a personal interest in the topic. My family, unfortunately, has a, a long, long, long history of cancer. My, um, my sister passed away last year. My mother passed away at a young age. So one of my questions I had in my life with me is, since my mother died, um, maybe we should not work on on treatment. We should really focus on detection or diagnostics. Diagnostics of skin cancer doesn't require looking inside your organs. You can just look at the person from outside. And it turns out we are not having no symptoms before it becomes dangerous. It sits there for quite a while. It grows uh, below your skin. It spreads. And then it destroys your liver. And then your first symptom might be a back pain or a yellow face. Maybe we should just look every single day. In fact, Sebastian has worked to make it possible for people to check themselves every day. In 2017, he published a paper in Nature called Dermatologist-Level Classification of Skin Cancer with Deep Neural Networks. What he demonstrated is that a program that runs on an iPhone performs just as well as dermatologists at diagnosing skin cancer. It sounds transformative. But Siddhartha has a very specific concern about this kind of technology entering the mainstream. Well, overdiagnosis is an important risk. Um, A classic example of that is a a lesion in the breast, uh, a spot that is actually not breast cancer, but is picked up and described as breast cancer. That leads to a biopsy. The biopsy leads to complications and so forth. And at the end of it, you discover that that, you've achieved not very much except for subjecting a woman to an unpleasant procedure with unpleasant costs. We don't want to catch just early cancer. We want to catch the early cancers that are likely to kill you. The other ones that are unlikely to become anything, we actually want to be able to reassure patients that they don't need a biopsy. Regina told Cara how screening enabled by machine learning could reduce unnecessary mastectomies. But according to Siddhartha, we also need to be cautious about over-screening pushing us into unnecessary procedures. And as AI and sensors become more ubiquitous, enabling us to constantly search for illness, there may be psychological implications that we're not fully prepared for. This is the very Orwellian notion of previvors. It's a word that I first encountered in clinic and it was a woman who had BRCA1 mutation, but in fact did not have any breast cancer. She called herself a previvor of breast cancer. She was a survivor of a disease that she yet did not have. Our culture hasn't reached the place that, you know, we're routinely thinking of ourselves as previvors, but it has reached a place where surveillance is, is constant. You know, you're moving from colonoscopy to 
mammogram to PSA test to uh, medical exam to retinal exam. And you can imagine stringing together with future devices a culture in which the body is always being hunted, scoured for being a potential locus of future disease. And that will, I think, distort culture fundamentally. It's a very Orwellian, very scary idea. Siddhartha alludes, of course, to George Orwell, whose novel 1984 was prescient about the culture of surveillance that's now blooming around us. But I'd never thought about surveillance in medical terms before, and who might be surveilling our bodies. One might be your health insurance company, or the government interested in, you know, who's healthy and who's not healthy. It was a chance meeting between Siddhartha and Sebastian that got Siddhartha thinking about AI and medicine. But the two have fundamental disagreements on the risks and rewards of surveilling the body. I love Sid as a person, but I can tell you, any doctor who tells you less data is better for you is irresponsible. If I could give you information where you have skin cancer every day, you will live longer than if you just consult a dermatologist every year or two. But also the unpredictability of death is part of the human experience. Our culture would be very different if we, you know, walked around with signs on our foreheads, uh, which told us the number of days that we had left to live. What Siddhartha is describing is not some thought experiment. Using AI to predict time of death is fast becoming a reality. But what inputs does it use? And how might knowing when we will die change our culture? Join us after the break. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Doctors are actually very poor at predicting death. If you look at the pattern of how people die... Most people don't decline along a predictable path towards their death. So it's often a series of strings that snaps, if you think about the human being being held together like a puppet on on many strings. It's not that the puppet slowly crumbles at a predictable pace. It's that all of a sudden three strings collapse and the hand comes dangling down. 
and the body and, and medicine tries to prop that piece up. And in doing so, now two more strings get cut and the, and the foot collapses. And when a certain number collapses, then nothing can be done. So it, it's a fundamental failure of homeostasis that makes death very hard to imagine, conceive. And of course, there is an emotional component to this. But unlike human doctors, AI doesn't get distracted by emotion. It looks at evidence and historical data to establish patterns. These algorithms uh, actually do quite well in predicting death. What is it attaching weight to? Is it a combination of things? Is it the fact that someone has a brain metastasis and has a slight rise in some uh, blood value of some salt uh, that predicts that this person is likely to do very badly in the next few days? You know, as you refine it further and further, many subtle things might start coming up that we don't know about, and those will be the most interesting ones. It's not just additives. That phrase, it's not just additives, is important to me, Cara, because it connects the dots between what Siddhartha is saying about predicting time of death and what Andy Schwartz was saying about getting better at decoding the human brain. They're both about understanding systems where one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two, where unexpected results emerge from complex systems. Uh, thinking about this makes me physically ill. <laughs> um, he's literally talking about predicting when we will die. It's mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. You know, what if you could know when you will die? It could change how we choose to live our daily lives. It's one of the things I find most disturbing in this whole series. So much of how we live and how we aspire and what we hope for is connected to our uncertainty about when we're going to die. But AI can change all of that. It's part of this more global line of thinking, which is that AI kind of takes the fun out of things. <laughs> Well, I mean, and it also, a big part of Western culture is the Bible and um, the fruit of that forbidden tree. Right. And uh, in Paradise Lost, there's this warning to know, to know, no more. And there's always been this idea in history that there's something magic about not knowing. Yeah. You know, Milton aside. Okay, okay, na <laughs> okay nature girl. <laughs> <laughs> we can start to think about what this might mean more practically. Lifespan data is directly linked to life insurance policies. You know, this would significantly change how much people pay. You also think about personal injury law, which takes into account how long somebody's going to live so you can determine how much money they should get for loss of quality of life. These are things that would be greatly impacted by people knowing when they're going to die. Right. Siddhartha calls death the ultimate black box. Which I think is actually the perfect description of black box. You know, we know we will die. We just don't know how and we don't know when. And with AI, it's similar. We know we'll get a result, an endpoint, but we don't know exactly how our input factors are combined to get there. Ironically, although AI itself is a black box, it's helping us unpack other black boxes, death being the ultimate one, uh, the brain being another. And then there's the human genome, the unique pattern of our DNA that makes each of us us. And we've mapped the genome, but there are a lot of concerns about decoding it, that it might be a sort of Pandora's box. Well, there's that story about the scientists in China who edited the genes of two babies using CRISPR and all the ethical concerns of creating gene-edited babies. Exactly. So I spoke with Andy Schwartz about actual progress being made in decoding the human genome. If you go back to the late 1990s, and the race was on to discover the human genome. And the sound bites were, as soon as we understand all the genes, we can cure disease. So, for instance... There was a breast cancer gene, and there was an Alzheimer's gene. And if we just knew what those genes were, we'd be able to eradicate these diseases. Well, it's been 20 years now, and we're just beginning, perhaps, 
to get some sort of genome-based therapies that might address some of these. And what we found is that there's no simple cause and effect. Very rarely are there simple gene defects correlated with disease. Rather, these diseases have hundreds of genetic basis, and each of those is relatively weak, but combined together, they generate these diseases. And so it becomes a computational problem, and we start looking again at this as a complex system where causality is no longer clear. And these are the complex computational problems we're getting better and better at solving. Siddhartha himself is interested in exactly this area, the confluence of genetics and computation. In fact, in 2018, he gave a talk at Vanderbilt University called From Artificial Intelligence to Genomic Intelligence. And it's an area where we're making rapid progress. The first papers are just starting to appear. They're in preprint. One of them is extraordinarily interesting. It appears to be able to predict height uh, based on an algorithm and genomic information. Tall parents tend to produce tall children. Short parents tend to produce short children. But we did not have ways to predict, based on genetic information, what your actual height was going to be. The question becomes, well, how do you take the genome and out pops height from it? If you can do that, that means you can take a fetal genome in utero and predict this person's future height. You know, based on these first few papers that I read about this arena, you require deep learning to do this. I wanted to understand why this prediction of height requires deep learning algorithms, not simple ones like Andy used to interpret Jan's brainwaves. It's not just additive. You can't just add up across multiple variations in the genome and arrive at a risk score. It's that there are interactions between genes that have to be captured. Again, these are early days for artificial intelligence being unleashed on genomes. But it seems to me that complex problems of Genetic architecture will soon be predictable using these kinds of algorithms. And that ability to predict raises huge questions for all of us. Do you want to know the height of your unborn child? Do you want to know the risk of dyslexia? Those questions are almost certainly likely to lead to extraordinarily acrimonious public conversations about what should be done and what shouldn't be done in terms of accessing the data. Who is to store the data? How much privacy we should have about it? And how much it will distort human culture to have these pieces of knowledge? Um, so if you think that clinically knowing when you're going to die is, is, is going to distort culture, knowing how tall your child is going to be in the future will also distort human culture. We haven't ever lived in a place or a space or a time where that knowledge has been predictable from a fetus. Artificial intelligence is giving us incredible power to see into the future, to ask and answer questions about the generations to come. But it is up to us our generation, to decide how we want to use this awesome power. The one thing that artificial neural networks can't do is define principles. They can only work on classifying things that we tell them to classify. There is still a human telling the artificial neural network what it should be doing. There is something very fundamental about the human brain, a scientist's brain, a doctor's brain, an artist's brain, that asks questions in a fundamentally different manner. The why question, why did this happen in this person in this time? Why does the melanoma appear in the first place? What is the molecular basis of that appearance? The most interesting mysteries of medicine remain mysteries that have to do with the why. And despite being at the absolute cutting edge of medical research, Siddhartha's most important guiding principle was written in ancient Greek over 2,000 years ago. Remember the Hippocratic Oath begins, first do no harm. It's maybe the single profession where the oath of the profession is in the negative. And this is for a reason. It's for a profound reason. 
in medicine, because we're intervening on bodies, because we're intervening on homeostasis, because we're intervening on cultures, uh, effectively, the capacity to do harm arises very quickly. And so the first do no harm injunction in the Hippocratic Oath is, is an important thing to keep in my own mind. Um, you know, what are the harms that arise if I were to start knowing my risks of future disease? Not just what advantages would I get in society? And this battle is happening in my mind, I assume in the minds of virtually every doctor as we move forward into this uh, beautiful and perilous future. In a world where our choices can create new beauty but also new peril, it's important that we move into that future with real care. And it's something Siddhartha has thought a lot about personally because, like Sebastian Thrun, he has a family history of heritable conditions. The risk is of schizophrenic disease and bipolar disorder. And right now, the algorithms to predict this still don't exist. As the project of sequencing lots of genomes and asking what diseases people have matures, this data set will become available maybe five, ten years from now. I will be past the period, I suppose, where that will make a difference. But to my children and my grandchildren, it might make a difference, and they'll have to make that decision. I will advise them individually, and it'll depend on a humanistic understanding of what an individual's desire to understand their own risk is. There's no algorithm that predicts that understanding. As AI advances, we're being faced with more and more urgent ethical choices. This in turn may put a new emphasis on the humanities, or, as Kai-Fu Lee suggested, place a new premium on personal attention, human interaction, and emotional care. Once we give up some of the diagnostic pattern recognition material to machines, it will be time to play. It'll be the time to play in the arena of human therapeutics, human biology, the complexity of the human interaction, the art of medicine. My hope is that medicine, in being more playful, will become more compassionate, more able to take into account individuals and their individual destinies rather than bucketing people in big categories. It means having more time to spend with humans. You know, we are so constrained by time that even compassion gets three minutes. We won't become more robotic, we'll become less robotic um, as the robots enter our realm. What Siddhartha describes is the holy grail of the AI revolution. Could it allow us to be more human? To be better doctors, more fulfilled workers and greater artists? Could it take routine work out of our hands and allow us to take better care of each other? It's a compelling vision, but as always, it has a dark side. While most doctors are guided by the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, there's no guarantee that new technologies will stay in the right hands. The line between healing and upgrading our bodies is thin and contested. And as AI improves, we can begin to translate desires directly from brain activity, modify the physical traits of our children through gene editing, and accurately predict when we will die. In the next episode, we ask, what does all of this mean for our future as a species? We speak to the world's leading thinker on these questions, Yuval Noah Harari, author of Sapiens and Homo Deus. I'm Oz Voloshin. See you next time. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. For the latest AI news, live interviews, and behind-the-scenes footage, 
Find us on Instagram at Sleepwalkers Podcast or at sleepwalkerspodcast.com. Sleepwalkers is hosted by me, Oz Voloshin. And co-hosted by me, Kara Price. We're produced by Julian Weller, with help from Jacopo Penzo and Taylor Chicoin. Mixing by Tristan McNeil and Julian Weller. Our story editor is Matthew Riddle. Recording assistance this episode from Joanne DeLuna, Sabrina Bowden, and Joseph Fridman. Sleepwalkers is executive produced by me, Oz Voloshin, and Mangesh Hatikada. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.